Welcome to Bewildered. I'm Martha Beck, here with Rowan Mangan. At this crazy moment in history, a lot of people are feeling bewildered, but that actually may be a sign we're on track. Human culture teaches us to come to consensus, but nature, our own true nature, helps us come to our senses. Rowan and I believe that the best way to figure it all out is by going through bewilderment into bewilderment. That's why we're here. For almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, A few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025, but I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash compass. And we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star. Hi, I'm Martha Beck. And I'm Rowan Mangan, and this is another episode of Bewildered, the podcast for people trying to, you guessed it, figure it out. How are you, Marty? Uh, uh, We've got jet lag. Bad. Yeah. We are lagged from the jet reason. Yeah. Because we flew for a long way into another world. Yes. And then we were there just long enough to adjust to the time change Mm. between Philadelphia and Melbourne, Australia. And then before even getting fully adjusted there, we turned around and came back. Look, I don't know about you, but I have a little bit of lag. Oh, I'm lagging. And the the reason I bring it up is that I wish it, the jet lag to be the disclaimer for how unhinged this episode may or may not be. Yeah, the hinges came off somewhere over (laughs) Fiji. (laughs) No hinges anymore, folks. It's just, you're just going to have to hold it together with your own tiny arms. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So yeah, we are are very jet lagged and it's the middle of the night for us and we are not accountable for anything we do, not legally, not morally. Hmm? It'll be all right. It'll be all right. Anyway, what are you specifically trying to figure out, really, Joey? Besides what time is it and who am I? Yeah. Um, Okay. So I was reminded of something as we were unpacking from our trip. Don't know if we mentioned it. (laughs) Don't know if we're going (laughs) to continuously mention it throughout this episode, but we've been on a trip. And you were unpacking and it came to my attention, not for the first time, that you are a hoarder Ah. in a... Very real Not sense. any gross, my stuff's going to fall on me and crush me in the night kind of way. Well, we're not there yet, but, like, it's a matter of degrees, right? And the yeah. thing is you hoard random stuff and I categorize you it. it. You hoard deodorant. Yes, but in a labeled drawer. <laughs> that makes it very different. Does it? Okay, so I... We'll be ordering deodorant, and you know how if you this is so bad if you happen to order things online because because you're having an armpit emergency, so you quickly order things online. Ah, but I can only order more than one at a time, you know. And then I say to Marty, 
I'm getting deodorant. Do you need some? And then her face goes all innocent, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And she like little nods her little head and goes, mm-hmm. And then when I open the drawer labeled. in the bathroom, labeled <laughs> to borrow some deodorant, what do I find? Like six deodorants. No. Jacques. Jacques. I'll tell you what I accuse of toi. Uh, two, and that is that when we got to Australia, who needed to borrow deodorant? Was it me? No, because I'm a hoarder in that I pack what I need in a suitcase. Only because I'd given all my deodorant to the poor. <laughs> and and I did find one behind the door a little bit later, but anyway. But I have a, a side quest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think it's gross to share deodorant. Now we're talking about roll-on. We're talking about like the kind of roll-on. In Australia, there's a roll-on that has an actual ball that rolls. We had that here as well, small well, one. We, the, we do. <laughs> the kind that I have tended to use since my arrival upon these shores is the kind that it's just like a chunk of something. And cakey, you, cakey fragrance. There you go. I don't think it's gross to share that, especially since you're usually putting it on when you're quite clean. It depends. Like I would share my deodorant with you, with anyone in this house, anyone, including my hairy armpit son, because he's a very, very tidy man. But like, just as a random thing, sharing deodorant with anyone, like there might be someone that would be like, no, no. I, I once asked if I could borrow someone's deodorant and that person was absolutely repulsed, revolted. I remember this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that was the beginning of the end of our relationship. It wasn't a, it wasn't a romantic relationship, I hasten to add. But, um, no. yeah. Yeah, I, I think that it's a, I think it's a borderline issue. I think you're going to get viewers, listeners coming down on both sides of this issue. I feel like, like I want to do some sort of poll about it because I think I'm in the right in thinking it's just a nice thing. I want to do a poll about it and then correlate it with other life variables. Like, oh my God, of course you do. You want a whole software program. Yes, don't I do. You? Like, do you want to share your deodorant? Do you think it's gross? And then on the side, just try to correlate that with how often do you get car sick or something? Yeah, you want to control for all the. All yes, the I want variables. I want regression equations, damn it. Marty, yes. given this, given all this, how, what are you trying to figure out? Um, I'm like sensing my armpits to see how gross they are. You're sensing um, your own armpits? Yeah. Like I, what, what it's, I'm not going to feel them with my hands. So I'm not feeling my own armpits ta- with my hands. <laughs> I'm certainly not using my other senses. You're, you're feeling so them from I, within. I am feeling my armpits from within. Correct. And it's taking a lot of focus and it's all I've got left. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> okay, so. You're trying to figure here's out. Here's what I'm trying to figure out. I am trying to figure out the flora and fauna of that wild and crazy place, Australia. Did we mention we went to Australia recently? It's really. I've been there once before, but since then I've been, I've traveled a lot in many places of the world, but I've never woken up to a place where the bird song and the insect noises are just slightly different from anything else I've ever heard. Well, it's the accent. Yeah, that's true. The birds are doing things with an Aussie accent. So they're all going, good night, good night. But your, your wonderful, beautiful mother, 
who hosted mm-hmm. us and um, let us stay in her own house and probably would have let us use her her deodorant if she you were probably Doubtless. rifling through her drawers looking for it anyway. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and then you borrowed it from me. Okay, we'll we'll do this off screen. <laughs> but um, she gave me a book that was about the flora and fauna of Australia, a lot of which I knew because I love animals. I, I know so much about flora and fauna. They're very nice people. That's what I'll say about flora and fauna. <laughs> We have a little niece named Flora. We do. And a little nephew named Fauna. Yeah, as far as I know. No, his name is Mally and he's adorable. Anyway, Paula gave us a book about animals that I'd never heard of and never seen. And it said so much about the land and life of Australia, which, as you know, drifted away from the rest of the continents a long, long time ago. So it has more difference than most continents do. Yeah. I observe something verbally about you what? that I've just realized you tend to do anthropology via like ornithology well yeah is there any other is there any other way like you 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 figure out how the animals what they're like and then you generalize it to what the people are like well so, yes i think it i think it holds I think you end up, I mean, every, every traditional culture does dances where they imitate the wildlife. There are intersections, interactions between species going on. We don't see that in our little cities cut off from everything. Anyway, let me just tell you about some of the freaky fauna. Um, it, one specific freaky fauna. No, <laughs> <laughs> it is the tawny frogmouth. Nah. Yeah. And see, you knew it right away. Hmm. It looks well, like a it looks like it was made like as a duster for furniture. It literally its face is just feathers sticking straight out. It's a that, whole new You know they're like every where we were staying, they're everywhere. They're like Why didn't I I probably thought they were just dusters for the yeah, house. Yeah, just the dusters that we Well, anyway, here's the deal. They don't have big talons. They're birds of prey, but they don't have big talons. What they have instead is a massive, massive beak. Like wide beak, deep beak, capacious beak. And they sleep with this beak open so that they can eat the spiders, mostly spiders, but also other insects that float, that walk in there, like investigating, right? While they're sleeping. Yes. They sleep with their mouths open. The spiders come in. And I know from your accounts that there are spiders the size of a damn volleyball. Oh, yeah. In Australia. Yeah, yeah. So this is what the tiny frog mouth is doing. And apparently they're so common that all you have to do is lie with your mouth open and one will go in. Because they're they're living a t- off. What? A tawny frog mouth will go in your mouth? The spider. Once the spider it gets past the tawny the... frog mouth. You've got to pay attention, Ro. This is your country. No. I mean, your country of origin. Okay. Anyway, the last thing it said in, in this little uh, description of the tawny frog mouth is that, yeah, it, it captures its food by being this big boggy mouth. And then um, it says they like to lay eggs at the same time every year, but will also lay eggs in response to heavy rain. Oh, my God, I do that. <laughs> I know you do. That's why I brought it up. It's like a way of being really cozy. 
Yeah, well, I guess so. Rain. But you know, I mean, and immediately my brain said, "Okay, well, they, 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 there are heavy rains. That means there's going to be lush greenery and a lot of spiders gangling about, and so there'll be more, you know, things comestibles running into the beaks of tawny frogmouth. So therefore, the females lay more eggs. But it really sounded like they were just getting up and they're like swallowing the huge, massive spiders, and then like Estelle turns to Fred and says, "Oh." damn, it's raining again. I think I'm just going to stay home and lay eggs. It's just was like, why would <laughs> a response to, if you were going to lay an egg, if you could lay them as opposed to just off casting them. Excuse like, me, what would be getting a trigger? bit personal. You could lay eggs in response to like loud noises or um, the presence of a rooster. Chickens do that, right? I would Why lay rain? eggs yeah. as a way to express my delight when visitors came over. That's really good because you'd have something to show them. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would greet them squatting in my own front garden. <laughs> so you'd wait for them to get there so they could see the egg come out. Yeah. Out of my, what do you call those things? Of the positor. Oh, I thought it was something completely different. Well, maybe that may be insects or eels. I thought there was like a or an egg, something a that sounded like a colloquial. Oh, a cochlea. Yeah, oh, a cloaca. A... It's ah. a cloaca. Cochlea is in your inner ear. You don't want a cloaca in there. <laughs> yeah, cloacas are these very primitive. They're just orifices. They're your multi-purpose orifice, and I think we've talked about them often, right? Thanks for tuning in to Bewildered, where people who don't know anything about animals speculate endlessly about their parts. <laughs> Cloacas, they're, they're convenient. I mean, it's like <laughs> you got your badge, you got your anus, you got your mouth. They're all just one big thing. Wow. I mean, I'm not sure about the mouth part. That might be next to it. I don't, I'm very tired. There's and I, a lot of there's a lot of anatomical detail. I out. have narrowly escaped being swallowed by a tawny frag, frog mouth. Now you tell me they were everywhere. It was raining, so they were probably laying eggs, which is the only reason that I didn't stumble into the open mouth of a frog mouth and have it eat me alive. I once read that the average person swallows seven spiders in their lifetime while asleep. And while asleep. Yeah, and I told someone I knew that, and this was his response. Fucking Trekkies? And I was like, <laughs> what? what do you mean? And he's like, that just sounds like the kind of thing that people who are into Star Trek would say. And I was yeah. like, I, I often think about that. Do you know when they categorize the contents and ingredients of food, especially grain-based food like cornflakes or whatever, bread, they have to calculate in a certain amount of the weight that comes from crushed up insects? No. Oh, yeah. It's in there. Is it part of the protein, like, percentage? I don't know. I just know that you really, I mean, we live in a world where there is the illusion that we can lie asleep with our mouths open and not have softball-sized spiders walk in. I think that is an American delusion. Australians seem to know it, and it makes them different. I yeah. think we should move on okay. to the topic <laughs> of the podcast. What do you say? Oh, right. uh, yeah, let's do that. We'll be right back with more Bewildered. We don't say this enough. We are so glad you're a Bewildered listener, and we're hoping you might want to go to the next level 
with us. By which I mean, if you rate and review the podcast, it helps new people find us so we can keep bewildering new souls and you know how much we love that. Ratings are very much appreciated. Obviously, the more stars you give us, the more appreciation is forthcoming. Reviews are quite simply heaven and we read everyone and exclaim over them. And we just love you all. Mwah. For almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction-finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, a few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025, but I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash compass. And we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star. So this episode is what we are calling a Row Cries for Help episode. Oh, Rose? I thought it was Rose Cry for Help. That sounds like it's a flower crying for help. Ah, Like you're saying thing. to the rose, cry for help, Rose. So I, I was, I say row, but it is, it is, I will call it Rowie's Cries for Help. Kind of blend it up. It, whatever. It's a cry for help and it's Okay, mine. anyway, the point is that I uh, supposedly have this coachy thing. I and did. I am a total mess. So every now and again, regular listeners will know that I just, we start talking about what we do for our podcast. And I say, please, Marty, just try and fix me a little bit. And she goes, okay. And then I bring her my problems. And that's what we're doing today. So if because anyone's not interested in my problems, <laughs> and my limitless hubris. No. 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 Yeah, or not a psycho. Okay. <laughs> that's, what, that's what therapists in Australia say. <laughs> that's all you have to know. Okay, so tell me all what right. you're tell me why you're so messed up, my love. All right. So we have a daughter. Her Oh my god, no wonder. Her name is Lila. She's in the vicinity of three years old, but let's just say for the purposes of this story, she was still two. I have, well, we have earned this poor child so many frequent flyer miles this year. Mm. So many. We have done two major international, interhemispherical, inter many time zonical journeys with yeah. a very small person. We went yeah. across the Atlantic, across the Pacific, up the planet, down the planet. Yeah. And this is what happened. It wasn't pretty. <laughs> we The first trip was like downwards across the Atlantic. To which, South Africa. To South Africa. It was tantrumy to say the least. I know. And Lila wasn't <laughs> great either. <laughs> <laughs> how we loved. How we loved. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. If you've never been <sighs> in a confined space with the toddler who's having a tantrum for six hours or seven hours straight. It's very hard to describe, but that was 
heading down across Remember the Remember the flight attendant standing there going, can I help you ladies? And we were just like, yes, here. Yes, you please. Yeah, Any no... help would be welcome. No, they, mm. had, they had no help for us. Then we had trip part 1B where we went back upwards across the Atlantic mm-hmm. and trigger warning here if you're not very into, if you're not really into stories about vomit, you might just want to skip ahead a minute or two. But if you are, you're going to oh, yes. love what's coming up because our kid had a bunch of different viruses, a little bit of bacteria for fun, and she started vomiting at the very beginning of our trip and then we went through an airport where we naively bought one T-shirt at every duty-free store. Yeah. As we and, – and every time we thought – We'll just get one. This will be the last time we need them. Meanwhile, we had a plastic bag that was getting very heavy of T-shirts soaked with. Yeah, we flew in from being out in the bush yeah. to, to Johannesburg and she yeah. threw up as we got to the got to Johannesburg and we thought, okay, mm-hmm. she's motion sick. She's air sick. And then there no followed the, the progress through the large Johannesburg uh, airport and the multiple... I just do not know how much stuff that kid had in her body to begin with. It just kept coming. And we did. We had the bag of used shirts. We were throwing away like $1 t-shirts and then buying it, putting another one and throwing. It was horrific. I saved most of those t-shirts. I just, I didn't really throw them out. And I just want to say the odor never really quite goes away. (sighs) But you know what? That was okay compared to what when she was throwing up on um, airline personnel. Well, no, wait, do the, like you. Oh, yeah. There was a bit before then. <laughs> oh, my God, I'd repress this. Okay, so we're going through this airport and there are all the little duty shops and we're buying T-shirt after T-shirt and she's ovorping. That's the backwards pronunciation of the town where I grew up, Provo, Utah. The opposite of Provo don't is so, Don't make that sound, though, anymore because I'm not okay. triggered, but that triggers me. Okay, but ovor- I'll use ovorp. Um, and Ro had run to go get something to try to deal with the, the catastrophe. And so I was there with Lila and I thought, she's not gonna throw up again. She just barely threw up into our very last like box of Kleenex or whatever. And then I looked down and there she was getting it going again. And I had nothing to deal with the, what came out. So I just cupped my hands in front of her face and she puked into my hands. And there I was standing next to a child, a screaming child in a stroller in a clothing store with my hands full of vomit. It was just one of those moments that you don't really train for. If like Sarah Jessica Parker was narrating this story in Sex and the City, like I feel like she, she would say something at this point like, as I stood there, hands, full of my infant daughter's vomit in the duty-free store, I had to ask myself, and do, what, how would you finish that sentence given that it was your experience? Uh, how much can love really handle? Because <laughs> <laughs> if you can handle someone's vomit, I think that's real love. That's what yeah. I think. And that's what I would have said on Sex in the City and that's why I was never on it. Anyway, you went into a kind of zen state. I experienced a level, like a transcendent kind of um, experience of of motherhood that it really surprised me because I've always been worried that as a parent I would 
be too actually this is what this whole episode is about be too socially swayed and worried about what people would think and all of this sort of thing but on this after the endless vomits and the you know it, and we'd had to change like get a fully all her clothes off in the middle of the airport and it had just been and we finally got to the point where we were in our gate and we had oh, yes. and we were thought we were getting pretty close to taking off and I actually went up there with Lila on my hip and just sort of said to the woman you know she's not feeling that well and um be great if we could get her on early and just settle her in a little bit and at that point I was standing you know Marty at the you know the bit I don't know what you call it like the desk where right. one would present one's boarding pass and yeah. you know she had like a bit of paper with a checklist on it right. a computer right. there's a little barcode reader thing mm, coming up yeah yeah so then Lila did the your your hometown spelled backwards? Overp. She overped all over that table, and it was interesting because that, like, even now I say it, I think that was that was that wasn't a great moment in my life, and <laughs> and and yet at the time I can remember just being seized with a kind of sense of the inevitability of yes. the moment itself. And I just looked across at the woman who, who the flight attendant or airline um, employee who was standing there and who was looking at me like, could you please un-make that happen? <laughs> and I was just like, no, this thing is happening to us both now. It just is. We just have to deal with it. This is part of our life story now. <laughs> And it was beautiful. The the perfect moment when your soul and the soul of a stranger just meld. Yeah, I don't know if she melded with me, but I was melding away. I remember looking at that and just going, nothing can happen now. We got a lot of complaints about us on that flight. Oh, we did. Surprised to hear. On all the flights. And that was actually, (laughs) that was peanuts compared to, the Atlantic is a puddle that we jumped. The Pacific is a big mama jama ocean. So then we fast forward a couple of months. Not really as many months as we probably should have fast forwarded, but there you go. Downwards across the Pacific. Uh, Lift all trigger warnings to do with vomiting. You won't find that here. Mm. We've got new and better. So um, (laughs) the flight down, Marty, you you had a very strong feeling about what Lila was channeling as we flew to Australia. And for those of y'all who don't know, uh, some of the first Europeans to colonize, colonize, yeah, uh, Australia were there as prisoners. Um, The living conditions were not good and it was considered undesirable. And they were sent to places without much uh, happiness where they were beaten severely. And you can see this in many movies and history books. So it's a, it was a, what did you call it? A penal colony, not a penile colony. (laughs) but a penal colony. So there it was. And uh, I, I'd imagine a lot of people weren't happy being taken there. So Lila Well, would... also political prisoners. That's true. Irish political prisoners. Who only ever stole a loaf of bread to feed their No, families. they, yeah, but like, yeah, to, and, and to put their middle finger up at the, you know, monarchy and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, I saw a meme that said um, I was trying to get a visa for Australia to go to Australia and they asked me, have you committed a felony? And I said, I didn't know that was still necessary. <laughs> anyway, Lila was, uh, we, we flew all the way to Auckland, New Zealand, and then we had four hours to go to get to Melbourne and 
she just it just broke her patience entirely. And as we've said before, she was a very strong child. So yeah. they I had her sitting on my lap and they put a seatbelt extension around her. So we, I had my seatbelt on and then she had her seatbelt that was connected to my seatbelt. So we were irrevocably bonded by seatbelts. And she decided well, it wasn't irrevocable, but go on. It wasn't revoked. It, it felt it felt irrevocable. It felt irrevocable. So she screamed. First of all, she fought like a wild alligator the whole time. If you yeah. could have tossed everyone on the plane up about four foot long alligator and and then put get put a lot of caffeine in those little alligators, it would have been everyone would have understood what we were dealing with. As it was, it was just us dealing the mighty baby and her screaming two things over and over, top volume. I mean, there was no one who couldn't hear it. The first thing was, get me out of here, which I think mm -hmm. everybody identified with. And the second was, this is not fair. And she just screamed those two things for four hours and fought and kicked she did not overwarp and that was an improvement i was back in my zen state again <sighs> yeah so that was the trip to australia so marty decided lila was reenacting the the convicts yeah. who who were sent there she was like on some level channeling their spirits yes your ancestors yeah it was coming yeah. through her against their will get me out of here this is not fair there it is. There are probably still people wandering Australia saying the same two things. Oh, no, there are, trust me. <laughs> Most of them. Most of them. <laughs> no, uh, I loved Australia. I thought it was beautiful. I love the people. Nothing against Australia. Nah. Except that it's a long freaking way away. Yeah, we should work on that, Aussies. Let's, let's figure something out with the whole distance. So then trip 2B was coming up the Pacific again and what we didn't know is that our kid was dealing with para influenza and a ear infection yeah uh she's also because of the whole sperm donor was a greek god supernatural strength thing she doesn't really complain about pain yeah if <laughs> anyone's can... wondering about that listen to our backlist <laughs> yeah yeah um so it was we didn't know how sick she was we just knew she was being a bit of a brat oh, yeah. and inevitably when your toddler is being a bit of a brat at your um home airport and you're trying to wrangle everything and you're just trying to get home and please god let this be a better trip than our three other trans hemispherical <laughs> trips of the year so then i bumped into an old friend <laughs> at the airport while lila lay on the floor and she was lying on the floor she was staging a protest. Yes, I, I would say I wouldn't say a nonviolent protest <laughs> um, about the fact that Marty and I had tried to sit in some seats, mm -hmm. and she didn't. That wasn't okay. No. Yeah. Anyway, so that was embarrassing because my friend had two beautiful children who were extremely well behaved, mm -hmm. and that's just you know that's just for me to work through in my own time. And um, and look, we got home. We, we got did. home. That's the thing. But now I'm left with a quandary. Uh -huh. So in you... in taking these trips and particularly this second trip to Australia, mm -hmm. was there on my part a degree of trying to please others? Yes. Yes. There was. Yes. Yep. 
Did I give Lila the opportunity to object to this travel? No. Oh, she didn't need an invitation. She seriously objected. Did we allow her to object successfully? No. I mean, it's hard to know how to best measure success, but mm, yeah. certainly if we were measuring impact. But no, she she had to go. And, you know, was she to some extent my kind of show and tell exhibit throughout the trip, see my family and friends? Yeah. They'd never yeah. seen her before. They wanted to see the new family member. I wanted to show. I also wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. That's what was there. Did, did this travelling exhaust her and also make her seriously sick twice? Mm. Also, yes. Mm. Marty? Yeah. 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 It did. Yeah. So, all right, so I feel bad that she got sick mm-hmm. and I've just got to, that's my responsibility to figure out and to work mm. through and la, la, la. But what I come to you with today mm. is that I can't quite figure out for myself where the culture nature divide lies in all of this. And for ah. people who don't, who for some reason <laughs> have the misfortune of tuning in to our jet lag special as their <laughs> first episode of Bewildered, um, what we try to do is talk about where culture and the idea of coming to consensus is in conflict and can take us away from our true nature, which is about coming to our senses. Yes. And so I am trying to figure out how, to what extent was I contravening my nature mm, in doing mm, this? Because it's actually yeah. quite a hard needle to thread in a way. Yeah. So it's like, was I, should I have stayed home while my kid was little? Was I wrong to want my family to meet her? Was I imposing my love for travel mm. onto this small, not defenseless by any means, but small person? Um, and, you know, did I do, did I do this whole endeavor? for the sake of culture at the expense of my kids' health and well-being. Ah, welcome to the quandary of parenthood every time <sighs> something goes wrong for your kid because there's always that question. There is always a choice you could have made that might have spared them some suffering. Mm. And not everybody does international travel, obviously, but everyone is confronted by conditions where they have to do difficult things. And very often there's no way to do it without dragging the kids along, either emotionally or physically, right? Right. Or both. And then people, life is a tough road to hoe. People get bumps and bruises of all sorts. And when it's our children, um, I think we are taught that we're supposed to spare them everything. And so we get into this not of guilt about everything bad that ever happened to our children because we hold ourselves culpable for any damage done to them. So how do we kind of think about the the heart arithmetic of like let's challenge them let's and let's also expose them to potential suffering? What does the culture say about it, would you say? So I think our culture right now um, – it, it basically is kids should always come first. And that was not always true. There's a really interesting book called Pricing the Priceless Child that talks about how as children stopped being seen as economic benefits on farms and factories, they weren't considered very valuable. But 
people started for the first time to say childhood itself is just valuable as a separate thing about not, you know, a thing where no hard things should happen to anyone. Before that, as soon as a kid was four or five years old, they were out doing work, right? And our culture has built up the sort of innocence of childhood ideal. And it's, I love this, but it's built it up to the point where if you can't create that for your child, you're not a good parent. And mm -hmm. mothers in particular, parents in general, but mothers in particular should give anything up for their children's benefit, should do anything even if it harms them in order to spare any stress to their children. And there's a very, very, um, it's a very strong cultural judgment against women who are seen as putting themselves ahead of their children in any way or causing situations where children can potentially get sick or whatever. I think, I think that's true of like, Main, sort of mainstream American culture down the line. I think there's 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 I think it varies. Like I think there are places where that's not as intensely um, kind of mandated in the culture. But I think that that's what you've just said is the messaging that I'm <laughs> receiving, and probably most people in my position are. This it's what I sort of see online and everything. And I mean, it, it just it, like the other day we were talking about, I was sitting and talking to Karen about um, Pompeii where the volcano killed a bunch of people many years ago and it flash fried them. Basically they were killed instantly in place. And um, I read this article about an archeologist who found the skeleton of a seven-year-old girl wrapped around the skeleton of a baby. And by looking at the bones of the seven-year-old, she had obviously died trying to protect the baby. And I'm sorry, honey. I know that's, we will put a trigger warning on this. It happened thousands of years ago, but it was still super sad. But the interesting thing was by looking at- I just at want to say the baby would be dead by now anyway. <laughs> I should probably not be laughing. <laughs> probably. Or probably. maybe it's Lila's father. We don't know. No, it died. Okay, somebody else. Anyway, um, the child carrying the baby was a servant or a slave. Rome was a slave, an enslaved person, and she was seven. And she was trying to save this baby. And Karen just looked at me and said, seven? All I ever did when I was seven is jump up and down on the bed and like throw things at my siblings. And that really is um, the difference between childhood now and childhood for hundreds, you know, millions of years before that. People did all they could, no matter how young they were. When a, when a, in Nordic cultures, when a child, when a male child could reach over the top of his head with say his right hand and touch his left ear, he was considered old enough to go to battle. Hmm. And that's usually about age nine. Yeah, but I, there's gotta be some, there's some middle ground that we're missing here between like absolute the child is right. upheld as as the the Christ figure and the child is a commodity um, plenty more where that came from. I feel like there's yeah. something in the middle and what I'm trying to figure out in this very specific context is like how do you math the thing? How uh -huh. do you like the possible upsides? How do you calculate the upsides of doing something that – you may not have to do. See, it's less complicated for me when it's something you have to do. Oh, yes, I'll that's hold true. that kid down and squirt medicine in her mouth if I think it's right. necessary. And have done. 
and have sort of recently. <laughs> um, but in gently, no, I don't, oh. I'm not, you know. No, no, we're, it's nothing not outlandish. She no. likes it. She goes, oh, banana. Yeah. <laughs> so when it's something that you don't have to do, what about when it's something that you want to do and that you can see potential upsides for your kid and you can see potential downsides for your kid? Challenge, enrichment, reward. Right. Uh, what broadening horizons. So you're yeah. making a really good point. And it is less so. ab yeah, there are the two absolutes that basically that children are inviolable and they must be, you know, handled with kid gloves or just throw them out as firewood. There's there is a middle area. Yeah. And uh, it has to do with the fact that life contains difficulty all the time. This was the whole, the Buddha story of this prince who was born and his father said he will never see anything that upsets him. You know, so he threw out, everybody around him was beautiful and happy and healthy. And then he became obsessed with wanting to know what the real world was like. So he sneaked out and saw sick people, dying people. He saw accidents. He saw horrible things, dead bodies. And then he spent the rest of his life trying to make sense of that. But the point is that when he was kept in the in the golden cage, something in him wanted to go out and experience the difficulties of life because it, for some reason that feels more meaningful to us. So our culture doesn't say every uh, experience your child will have will has the potential to harm them and has the potential to make them grow. And if, if it harms them, the potential for growth may be greater than if it does not. You don't know. And this mm. is the focus, okay? So the whole idea of mommyhood in that I see like on the internet in the places that I look at it is very much about be selfless, be selfless. Mm. Think of the child first. But nature says if you want to figure out how to survive and how to make the right choices, you have to get away from thinking about other people's lives and focus on your own because you have no access to the subjective experience of another person. Mm. You have no access to your child's destiny. Whatever it is that they need and that they experience, they're going to experience that, even if you're a king who keeps them in a golden cage, huh. right? Yeah. The big lie is that parents can control, can control their circumstances, can control the way the child experiences it, can control the child itself. So it's like I could refuse to let her go on a long flight and she'd still learn the lesson that she's meant to learn some other way. Yeah, or she'll still suffer. She, she could have gone, I mean, she did eat some dirt in Africa and come down with a gastric bite, but she also ate some dirt in New York City and came down with COVID and brought it, you know. Was that your fault? Yep. <laughs> well, see what... The idea is you should have kept her in some sort of hyperbaric chamber. I know, yeah. And then she would have grown up without any real experience of the world like the Buddha did and feel like something was deeply missing from her mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. So it depends on sort of the way you view co the cosmology of our lives. I really think when I work with people as a coach, my presupposition is that their instructions for what they should do and what will they will best experience as a full life is coded into their subjective experience. I don't have access to it. All I can do is encourage them to get access to it. And culture tries to say, to take away that, um, that agency 
and say, no, 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 we'll tell you what your destiny is. We'll tell you what you're supposed to achieve, what you're supposed to earn, what's impressive, what is love. We'll tell you all that. But if you take it from the outside, it ends up going wrong every time. And if you stop and every single person goes, and the Buddha did it too, you go off into the forest eventually. You go into the place where you see suffering and then you go, whether metaphorically or physically, into the place of quiet introspection where you learn what your suffering is about. Hmm. And then I really like somebody said, a spiritual teacher I know and said, the Buddha was interesting because he only saved one person. <laughs> and yet Buddhism, which is, I'm not proselytizing Buddhism, I'm not a Buddhist, but it has made many lives easier for many millennia, and he only saved one person. And then he he acted from a place of, I know what it is like to be kept away from suffering. I know what it is like to suffer. I know what it's like to find my way to my own best experience. And my parents could not do that for me. Hmm. Well, this is so interesting because I think I'm – starting to understand something about myself um, that is changing this. So I've I've had this little, this weird guilt bubble, you know, confusion about the travel mm -hmm. and travel is something that is has always been very important to me. And I think in some way I've uh, tended to categorize it as vacations. Mm. Even when I was like backpacking around India by myself, like it's sort of, I think I was putting it in a self-indulgent um, basket in my mind, whereas actually, I, I think actually what I was doing was what you're, you've just been describing yes. yeah. as exposing myself to the extremes yeah. in life. And that's what my calling was to travel. Yeah. And so that changes it in terms yeah. of what I'm, what I am actually exposing Lila to, not E. coli so much as <laughs> the rich tapestry, right? <laughs> but E. coli is part of it, you know? Oh, E. coli is a large yeah. section. It's in the bio tapestry. So if you define everything as vacation, it sounds like you are doing something frivolous yes. and taking your child and putting her in harm's way is a problem. But yes. that's not my experience of why you travel. I would, no. I would take out the word vacation and put in the word quest. And I just, I've just been reading a book about the new science of um, brain science of spirituality and how people who are open to new experiences, in other words, they see the whole world as a quest, mm -hmm. they suffer more and are happier than other people. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, they suffer more short term, but they yeah, turn yeah. that into an experience of meaning making. Meaning, yeah. And that is more important to us than comfort. So Viktor Frankl in the, in the horror of Auschwitz didn't write man's search for protection and safety. He wrote man's search for meaning. And it was meaning that got him through the experience, not someone treating, nobody was treating him well. So what mm. he was reaching for, it was not any kind of, um, obviously he wanted to be out of there and to feel better, but it was meaning that kept him from allowing himself to just give up and die, or so he said. It's almost like suffering plus reflection or some, something juicier than the word reflection equals meaning. 
I think actually this story, and I wasn't planning to tell the story of the Buddha, but it just came up um, spontaneously. And I think it really is. We need an experience of being deeply protected and safe. We need an experience of being completely unprotected and exposed mm. to the, the reality of a very, very difficult physical experience where you will end up dead. <laughs> you oh, know? Or, or worse, people will complain about you. Uh, or, you or you might throw up on an air a flight attendant and get the nastiest look you will oh. wish. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, and you then need the space to make sense of your own experience. And what mm. I would gently, lovingly suggest, my darling, mm. is that you try to make sense of other people's experiences and you can't. Oh, you're trying to, nice one. You're trying to force Lila's experience to be the best thing for her. And you do that yeah. with everyone. You want their experiences <laughs> to be that. I do it too. Oh my God, I'm a freaking life coach. That's all I ever do. <laughs> I know how to make your life work. I don't know how to make your life work. I don't know. But I do know that if you choose to make meaning out of your experiences, whether they're soft, hard, or in between, mm. you are going to have a very interesting, absorbing, worthwhile life. And so you, if we kept her in the basement because we're afraid of plague and tornadoes, we've been down there during the pandemic, you know, with tornado warnings, she still would have suffered. If we hadn't taken her to on those two trips, she would, she, she still might've gotten sick and suffered. We, we can't know. So how do you do the math? You go off by yourself into your own metaphorical forest and say, what does my quest need now from me mm, okay. and, I, and then you say does my quest feel like it needs like my role as a mother is to take my child or get care for them and leave them behind or get help you know like you but you feel it through as your quest and then you give them the dignity of their own suffering oh my god okay so i think what i've just figured out is that I I have had an assumption that in because I love going places, right? Mm -hmm. This has been established. I love that that <laughs> yeah. experience. And I thought that I was um pushing something that was born of culture on Lila mm -hmm. by wanting her to do that. But maybe it's just that I can intuit that it's part of her quest too, or the fact that it's my quest just de facto makes it her quest because she's stuck with me for a while. Yeah, at the point, and this is what nature says. We are social primates who are born very helpless and very bonded to our caretakers and totally dependent on, on our caretakers for a, an extremely long period of time compared to almost any other animal. And so as a mother, you kind of, your quest is to carry the baby with you as long as the baby needs carrying. And it's interesting, like if you get all scriptural the way I did growing up Mormon in Ovort, um, <laughs> one of the things that is in the Bible over and over and over again, it'll say, uh, talk about war or natural disaster and say, woe to those who, um, who give birth or give, uh, uh, are breastfeeding basically. Um, in this time because it's it's understood that the woman and her tiny child are a unit 
And the hardest moment of a human being's life, according to the, this repetition, this rep, repetitive um, comment in the Bible is that there's nothing harder in a human's life than being the woman upon whom that little tiny child depends and being in a situation where you have to say escape a, a, an oncoming wall of soldiers. Because a woman alone can run, fight, or hide, but a woman with a baby is screwed, <laughs> right? But you don't leave the baby. Like the, the choices are harder there than any other time. And the baby is going to do the things that make your world less convenient and more frightening. It's going to be harder during that phase than in any other phase of your life, I promise you. And, um, Mother love is sitting down and going, how do I keep my own oxygen flowing so that I can put the oxygen mask over my child's face? You know, and it's not just how do I stay safe, safe, safe. It's how do I feed my soul? Right. So what I'm trying to figure out, I guess, is what's oxygen in this equation? Like hmm. what's me indulging myself and what's actual oxygen for my soul? Like what if, what if Club Med is my oxygen? You know, it's interesting the way you frame that because it implies the cultural construct that says Club Med is uh, is frivolous and over the top and a mother should never put that above the needs of her child. Spot so you <laughs> built in the cultural yeah. judgment. But the yeah. fact is that for some, I Club Med is not in my oxygen, but some for some people it might be. Um, drawing and reading books are part of my oxygen. Somebody else might not have that at all, right? Yeah. So it, it has to be subjective. And if you're true to yourself and you have integrity, you will know what your oxygen is and you will know that you have to give yourself enough of that to keep yourself healthy and happy in order to raise happy children. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. But I do have to just tell you that um, I think Club Med is my oxygen. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. What is Club Med? I don't know yeah, what Club Med is. Say, have you ever been to Club Med? Have you been holding your breath for 40 years? No, I don't know what it is. I don't know why I'm fixated on it's, it. It's a, it's a chain of like um, vacation spas all over the world. Yeah, like a resort kind of thing. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of halfway between like Disneyland and... I don't know. I've never been. It's not my <laughs> oxygen. <laughs> so I guess the my point is, well, the point that I was making was I don't know what my oxygen is, but that's bullshit, right? Like, mm. of course I know what my oxygen what is. What is it? Yeah. Travel. Yeah. Exposing myself to new places, to new sites, to adventure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it really is part of your quest. And, and yeah. if you go without your – I watched this – a video on big wave surfing on the plane and this guy surfed till he was 35 gave it up said i've had a great life and after two years was really successful and completely miserable he had to mm. surf it was his oxygen you know yeah i i've never surfed but i have no judgment of him it, because dying because you don't have your oxygen is not a moral judgment or a cu cultural consequence it's just physics yeah, right? it's, it's the physics of psychology so what I would like to say in closing hmm. is that everybody has someone who depends on them in some way. 
if you have small children, you are maxing out the care of dependents, but we, you may be taking care of older parents or uh, loved ones, friends, siblings, whatever. Everybody is depending on somebody. So when it comes time to make decisions and you're worried about your dependents, go to the forest for yourself. Go to a place that's away from people. We always say this, but metaphorically or physically, get away from people. Find that sense of truth and sense what is your oxygen? What mm. do you need to be happy? And your body will tell you. It will respond with joy and alertness to the, a choice that's right for your quest. And mm. by shutting down, if you don't make the choices that are right for your quest, and then start a bank account, put some money in it to pay for the therapy of your dependents right. yeah. later. You can apologize to them. And, you know, working that out together may be part of your mutual quest as you go through um, a life where every single person suffers and all of us can make that mean something good. Thank you so yeah. much for fixing me once again, Marty Aww. Beck. I know exactly what you need and I'm going to make your life good. <laughs> so while we're at it, why don't we just stay, stay wild? We hope you're enjoying Bewildered. If you're in the USA and want to be notified when a new episode comes out, text the word WILD to 570-873-0144. We're also on Instagram. Our handle is Bewildered Podcast. You can follow us to get updates, hear funny snippets and outtakes, and chat with other fans of the show. Bewildered is produced by Scott Forster with support from the brilliant team at MBI. And remember, if you're having fun, please rate and review and stay wild. You know, what I'm seeing out in the world is a lot of fear and a growing amount of despair. Maybe you're feeling that way too, because the ways our culture has taught us to navigate the world, to navigate our lives, they are failing us. We need a new language. We need a new set of tools to find our way individually and as a group. And I know we can still do this. I put everything I do know about it into Wayfinder Life Coach Training. And the tools that I teach there are to help people redefine how we relate to each other, how we make a living, how we do community. We can only change the world for the better if we redefine how we think and the world needs Wayfinders now more than ever. So please go to MarthaBeck.com and you'll find your way. <laughs>